Go ahead and open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 27, please. If you're using the church Bibles here, it's page 1420. Page 1420, Matthew chapter 27. We've been going through this uh, gospel for the last uh, four plus years now and uh, coming to the end of it. But today's text is verses 45 through 50. Matthew 27 verses 45 through 50. This is that dark part of the gospel. The dark part which describes the death of our Lord Jesus Christ for our sins. Let's approach it with a deep sense of reverence and awe. Matthew 27 beginning in verse 45. From noon until three in the afternoon, Darkness came over all the land. About three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing there heard this, they said, He's calling Elijah. Immediately one of them ran and got a sponge. He filled it with wine vinegar, put it on a staff, and offered it to Jesus to drink. The rest said, Now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to save him. And when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. Let's pray. Lord, we sang those songs that reminded us of your death. What kind of a love is this that the Creator would give us life for his creation. Even though this passage is a very familiar passage for those of us who've been your followers for a while, still there is so much depth to it. I find myself completely inadequate to do justice, even to a small extent, to the truths that are in this passage. But I pray that you're Spirit would overrule all my weaknesses and speak through me so that all of us here would come under the deep conviction of the magnitude of what your death means to each and every one of us. Would you please, Lord Jesus, exalt yourself through this passage so that we will all bow down and say, what a great Savior. To that end, for your namesake, I pray. Amen. You know, many famous people have uttered memorable words on their deathbed. Let me give you a few examples. The founder of Buddhism, Buddha said this at his deathbed. Behold, O monks, this is my advice to you. All component things in the world are changeable. They are not lasting. Work hard to gain your own salvation. And the American poet Emily Dickinson on her deathbed said this, I must go in, the fog is rising. Thomas Alva Edison, the inventor of light bulb, among other things, said this at his deathbed, it is very beautiful over there. Jane Austen, the English novelist, said, I want nothing but death. Beethoven, German composer, at his deathbed said, friends applaud, but the comedy is finished. Winston Churchill, always known for his statements, 
former president of uh, prime minister of uk at his deathbed said i am bored with it all bob marley the jamaican singer said money can't buy life and steve jobs the american businessman and co-founder of apple said oh wow oh wow oh wow that is deathbed deeply profound now the world describes these as being incredibly memorable but for those who are christians who are believers more than the words of mere mortals we value the words of our savior and king jesus christ while every word of the lord jesus matters to us especially the words that he spoke before dying are of particular importance because they are very penetrating for those of you who are not christians and for those of you who are new to the faith the bible gives a record of the last statements jesus spoke while he was on the cross in fact when you summarize them all jesus spoke seven statements while he was on the cross seven last sayings of jesus his first statement was addressed to the father this is what he said father forgive them for they do not know what they are doing luke 23 verse 34 his second statement was addressed to the repentant thief on the cross truly i tell you today you will be with me in paradise luke 23 and verse 43 the third statement was to mary his mother and john his beloved disciple woman here is your son he said to mary and to john here is your mother john 19 verses 26 and 27 his fourth statement was to god my god my god why have you forsaken me matthew 27 verse 46 that we just read his fifth statement was to everyone in the crowd there i am thirsty john 19 and verse 28 sixth statement again was to everyone it is finished john 19 verse 30 and just as he began his first statement to the father his last and final statement the seventh one was to the father father into your hands i commit my spirit luke 23 and verse 46 many of these seven statements are statements of great comfort statements such as his prayer of forgiveness for his enemies his assurance of paradise to the repentant thief at the very last minute that evil man could find forgiveness reminds us none is beyond the saving grace of jesus christ if you're sitting here thinking it's too late for you think again it is not it is not jesus can tell you today you will be with him in paradise someday his love for his mother brings a lot of comfort to us even on that occasion he wants to honor his mother keeping with the fourth commandment perhaps the greatest words of comfort that comes to our heart is his victorious cry it is finished the work of salvation is complete the price for your and my sin paid in full but there's one statement of jesus that stands apart from all the other six it stands apart because it's a heart piercing cry it's a cry that came from a soul that was in deep anguish a cry that human minds can never fully comprehend 
It's that cry that I read earlier. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The same Father of whom Jesus described in John 8, 29, the one who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do what pleases him, had now forsaken him. Even though Jesus never once thought or spoke or did anything that was displeasing to the Father. In fact, the very fact that Jesus was on the cross was to please the Father because he was doing his will. Yet, yet Jesus was forsaken. Why? He was forsaken so that all who would put their faith in him will never experience that abandonment. That abandonment. He was forsaken so that those who put their faith in him will never, ever be abandoned. Not for one second. The Bible tells us, Didi reminded us earlier in Romans 6.23 that the wages of sin is death. Spiritual death, where the soul is apart from the life of God. Physical death, soul apart from the body, physical body. Eternal death, both soul and body forever away from God. But it also says the gift of God is eternal life in or through Jesus Christ. You see, for God to offer this gift of eternal life to us without compromising his holy and just nature, he had to forsake his son who was being punished on the cross for our sins. That's why he was forsaken. That's why he had to be forsaken. And that's what this passage that I read earlier in Matthew is all about. Forsaken and dying for our sins. Last week, we looked at verses 27 through 44 of this chapter. We saw the events that describe the various sufferings of our Lord just before his crucifixion and his sufferings for the first three hours on that cross. We're going to look at the second three hours today from noon until 3 p.m. Look at verse 45. From noon until 3 in the afternoon, darkness came all over the land. This darkness was not of the natural kind. It was a supernatural darkness. The Old Testament frequently describes darkness especially sudden darkness, one that is not of the natural kind, but of the supernatural kind with God's judgment. For example, when God brought one devastating judgment after another while bringing his people out of Egypt, you remember, the last one was the death of the firstborn, but the one before that was what? Darkness. Exodus 10 verses 21 through 22 tells us this, Then the Lord Yahweh said to Moses, Stretch out your hand toward the sky so that darkness spreads over Egypt, darkness that can be felt. So Moses stretched out his hand toward the sky and total darkness covered all Egypt for three days. This darkness was a judgment on Pharaoh and the nation of Egypt for refusing to obey God's command and letting his people go out of Egypt. Years later, the prophet Amos warned the nation of Israel they were walking in disobedience to God. God sent prophet after prophet. They kept on living in rebellion. And through Amos, God spoke words of warning. This is what would happen if you continue to remain unrepentant, was God's message. This is what God said through Amos, Amos chapter 8, verses 7 through 
8, the Lord has sworn by himself the pride of Jacob. I will never forget anything they have done. Will not the land tremble for this and all who live in it mourn? The whole land will rise like the Nile. It will be stirred up and then sink like the river of Egypt. And then in the next verse, verse 9, Amos used the darkness imagery as a sign of God's judgment. Verse 9, he says, In that day, declares the sovereign Lord, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. Preview of that happened on Calvary that fateful afternoon. The prophet Jeremiah, while warning the unrepentant people of Judah of God's coming judgment, again used the darkness imagery as well. Jeremiah 16, verses 15 through 16, this is what he says. Hear and pay attention. Do not be arrogant, for the Lord has spoken. Give glory to the Lord your God before he brings the darkness, before your feet stumble on the darkening hills. You hope for light, but he will turn it to utter darkness and change it to deep gloom. So you can see the darkness language in the Old Testament always pointed to God's judgment. And here in Matthew, darkness is once again evidence of God's judgment. But whom did God judge? Number one, he judged his son, Jesus Christ, who bore our sins and took the judgment we deserve. Number two, he also judged the nation for rejecting her Messiah by crucifying him. So it's primarily judgment. But also, also, and I'm not dogmatic about this. Okay, so let me state that up front. Also, perhaps this darkness was a sign of the father mourning over the death of his son. See, often when we talk about the cross, we don't talk about the father's emotion. But imagine for the Holy Father to put his Holy Son to death. The prophet Amos, in Amos 8, I read up to uh, verse 9, but verse 10, this is what Amos says, I will turn your religious festivals into mourning and all your singing into weeping. I will make all of you wear sackcloth and shave your heads. I will make that time like mourning for an only son. And the end of it like a bitter day. Perhaps the father was also with the darkness expressing his emotion. But primarily, this darkness referred to judging the son for our sins and judging the nation for rejecting the long-awaited Messiah. Matthew goes on from describing the outer darkness to the inner darkness what the Son of God experienced. The darkness of the soul, the darkness of being forsaken by God, a darkness that led to our Lord crying this cry. Verse 46, about three in the afternoon. So three hours of darkness, God is pouring his wrath for the Holy Son of God. Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, that's two Hebrew words referring to my God, my God, and then Lama Sabachthani, those are Aramaic words translated, why have you forsaken me? Those words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But a quote from Psalm 22 and verse 1. David cried out as he experienced the absence of communion with God during his time of suffering. He cries out this, why have you forsaken me? But here, 
as Jesus experienced that same judgment, but in a much heightened form, something that David would have never experienced because as godly as David was, he was still a fallen, sinful human being. Jesus now cries that same cry. What made Jesus cry this cry that is so soul-wrenching? Why? Because this comes from a holy, spotless, sinless Lamb of God. It's a cry that's beyond human understanding. I was telling fellow leaders here Thursday as we were praying, I said, how can I do justice to this verse? I feel so inadequate. These are words that human minds cannot really plumb. This is the, the depths of it. This is, this is God talking to God. How can a mere mortal come to grips with it? It's one of the most profound and hardest to explain statements in all the Bible. So I want to try to address what scripture tells us, try to help us under, get a basic understanding and also explain what it does not mean. So work with me. We're going to start by asking a fundamental question. What was Jesus doing on the cross? The Bible gives the answer. As our substitute, he was paying the price for our sins. Isaiah tells us, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Isaiah 53, verse 5. And Peter tells us, he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross. So on the cross, Jesus was bearing our sins. First Peter 2, 24. So as our substitute on the cross, Jesus paid the price for our sins. That's the fundamental truth. Now, this does not mean Jesus became a sinner on the cross. Jesus was only treated as a sinner. It's very important. It was at this time, these three hours to be specific, that Jesus was abandoned by God in a judicial sense. God the Father was also acting as the holy judge as he placed our sins on Jesus. Jesus became our sin bearer. It was during these three hours of darkness the father was treating Jesus, his pure and sinless son as though he committed all the sins we have committed or would ever commit. It was at this time Jesus experienced the spiritual separation from God. A temporary separation in terms of fellowship in terms of intimate communion with the Father, not in terms of his relationship with the Father. Very important to understand that. I'll circle back to that in a few minutes. This spiritual separation from the Father that Jesus underwent on the cross is the spiritual death that he underwent on our behalf. It is hard for us sinful beings to imagine what it means to not be in close fellowship with the Father. Sometimes we experience that. You know, we go through these dry spells. Maybe we have sinned and we're not letting go of that sin. We've not repented. We feel God is distant. Kind of makes us miserable. You know, we're in church. Outside we're putting on a smile. But inside we're far away from God. Everybody's talking about the Lord joyfully and we're just not there. We're far away. 
we can get that to a certain extent very very finite level but here is the holy son of god from eternity past never had this loss of communion with the father this loss in commun- loss in fellowship with the father it was too much for him to bear this 3 hours of spiritual separation think about this for a moment in john 11 the writer the gospel writer john tells us the word was with the father now that word with is a common word in the english but there are three different words that are translated as with and the word that is used there is also translated elsewhere as face to face jesus from eternity past was face to face with the father the idea is of intimate close perfect fellowship that's broken now jesus was being treated as though he was the opposite of everything he was the opposite of sin he was the opposite of unrighteousness but he is now being treated as the embodiment of all of that he couldn't bear it he just couldn't bear it and it was this intimacy that was broken during those 3 hours as jesus bore the wrath for your and my sin in fact it was this loss of intimacy that jesus foresaw that was going to come that made him shrink in horror and plead with the father hours ago in the garden of gethsemane when he said three times my father if it is possible may this cup be taken from me yet not as i will but as you will it was this cup this cup of suffering you're going to pour out your wrath on me even though from eternity past the son knew this was coming but now as he's experiencing this before he got to experience it he couldn't bear the horror now as he's experiencing this this shows the human side of jesus also without losing his divine side you can see as a perfect human being this is what it means to be out of fellowship with the father adam and eve knew that to a little extent because they knew what it was to walk in close fellowship because they were created sinless they would have found that out the minute they disobeyed you and i we come into this world as children of wrath we sin because we are sinners we don't become sinners because we sin we come with that sin nature so first we are so used to in and out of fellowship even the best days of our fellowship is still far away from what it is going to be in eternity we just don't know how to worship god without any sin in us but here the lamb of god could not take this that is why he couldn't even call god as his father he's saying my god my god he's experiencing that spiritual distancing jesus always addressed god as his father but now he cannot even call him as his father it's like him saying i understand judas forsook me i understand the leaven abandoned me i understand the nation for the most part and the leaders rejected me but even you forsaking me my soul cannot bear this he's crying out in deep anguish the angels are watching 
stunned as their creator is hanging between heaven and earth, forsaken for the sins that you and I often so cherish and are unwilling to let go. If this cry does not move hard hearts to turn to Jesus and to turn from our sins, I don't know what else will. What kind of a love is this? A love that gives its life for its enemies. Heart-wrenching cry. And given there's so much wrong teaching about this cry, I also want to point out the two things that did not happen at the cross. Number one, this spiritual separation, this loss of temporary fellowship, it's temporary loss of fellowship, communion between the Father and Son did not break the essential unity of the Trinity. One God and three persons, that unity can never ever be broken. That was not broken here. A just judge can sentence his son to death and continue to remain as his father. Think about it in the human realm. Fathers, okay? Your son does something so horrific. You can look at that son and say, I am so ashamed even to look at you for doing this. But that does not stop you from continuing to remain as his father or your son continuing to remain as your son. What is lost in that time? The fellowship, the intimacy. That is what is happening here. Jesus did not become a sinner, but even as he was being treated as a sinner, there was a spiritual separation. No physical separation. God the Father could not be spiritually intimate with his son, who even though did not commit one sin, was treated as though he committed all, all of our sins. Second thing that did not happen on the cross is that Jesus did not experience a separation between his divine and human natures. There's a false teaching that says that Jesus' divine nature left him on the cross. The Holy Spirit came at the time of his baptism. That's when Jesus became divine and then the divine nature left him at the cross. No, that's false teaching, that's heresy. Jesus was divine from the get-go. He cannot lose his divine status. He chose not to use all the privileges that come with that status. He added on another nature, the physical nature. The person of Jesus is indivisible. The divine nature needs the human nature in order to be a perfect substitute for sinful humans. But the human nature also needs the divine nature in order to make the scope of the sacrifice sufficient and powerful enough for all our sins. Because God is infinite. We need the infinite to absorb infinite amount of sins. But also, he needs to be a perfect substitute because humans sinned. So he took on the nature of flesh and blood. So that's why I said earlier, it is important to understand what happened on the cross when he cried this cry and also what did not happen. 
it's best to confine our understanding even though we'd love to know more. And there's others who can probably give you more details, and I'm sure they are. But with my understanding, I want to be careful I don't go beyond what is written. So the point that we should not forget is this agonizing cry that Christ uttered on that cross was for you and me. Even believers should never, ever forget this cry, especially when we are tempted to hold on to any kind of sin. How can we do so when this cry should be ringing in our ears? This is what he did for you and for me. Notice what happened next when the crowd heard this cry from the lips of our Lord. Verse 47, back to Matthew 27 in case you lost your place there. When some of those standing there heard this, they said, he's calling Elijah. Why Elijah? Is it possible that the people close by made a mistake? They couldn't hear clearly. Remember, this. there's a lot of crowd there as he's calling Eli, Eli, which is the Hebrew, God, God. It could very well be that they think he's calling Elijah. Why Elijah specifically? See, there was a general belief among the Jews. Even now that's there. Uh, a Jews that at the time of a person's suffering, Elijah would come to help, especially before the return of the Messiah. This is a misunderstanding of uh, Malachi chapter 4 and verse 5, where God says, I will send uh, Elijah before the great, before the dreadful and the great day of the Lord's wrath. So, so, so false belief, like Catholics, um, uh, if you're from a Catholic background or familiar with Catholicism, you know Catholics have St. Christopher as someone to lean on during your time of need, like travels and emergencies. So for the Jews, Elijah was like the same Christopher. So you call upon Elijah during your time of need. Look at their response. Immediately one of them ran, verse 48, and got a sponge. He filled it with wine vinegar, put it on a staff, and offered it to Jesus to drink. Wine vinegar was a cheap drink that the poor and the soldiers there would have uh, drunk to quench their thirst. It's a good thirst quencher. That's what historians tell us. Uh, So since something was around there, They offered it to Jesus. John in his gospel, while describing this, gives us a little more details. You can just uh, hear me or you can turn to John chapter 18, verses 28 and 29. This is what John tells us. Later, knowing that everything had now been finished and so that the scriptures would be fulfilled, Jesus said, it is, I am thirsty. His fifth cry from the cross, depicting his humanness. A jar of wine vinegar was there, so this soaked a sponge in it, put the sponge on a stalk of the hyssop plant and lifted to Jesus' lips. Interestingly, this drink offering was also predicted in the Old Testament by David, Psalm 69 verse 21. They put gall in my food and gave me vinegar for my thirst. Commentators are divided whether this drink was offered in mockery or was it offered with sympathy. I lean on the side It was sympathy because according to John 19.30, Jesus did not refuse the drink but took it. And he knew it was just a matter of minutes before he was going to give up his life. So he didn't have to uh, prolong this. So it's it's not something that was going to numb his pain because he was at the threshold of giving up his spirit. But notice, back to Matthew, the reaction of the people immediately after Jesus took the drink It's the hard-hearted crowd. You can see depravity at its fullest here. Look at verse 49. The rest said, 
Now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to save him. Once again, what was the crowd after? Another miracle. The miracle of total darkness was not sufficient. Now we want to see Elijah coming back in the chariot, blazing fire coming down from heaven and just plucking the Messiah out from the cross. That was what they were craving. But there would be no Elijah. Only the death of the Son of God. Verse 50. And when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. Notice that last part. He gave up his spirit, indicating Jesus was in full control of everything, including his death. For the second time, Matthew tells us, Jesus cried out with a loud voice. Verse 46 He said, he cried out with a loud voice, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now again, he cried out in a loud voice. Well, Matthew does not tell us what the cry was. John actually tells us what the cry was. In John 19.30, he says, when Jesus had received the drink, he said, it is finished. That was that loud cry. The cry of greatest comfort to us who put our faith in Christ. And a cry that's Inviting those who have not put their faith in Christ to put your faith in Christ because you cannot pay for your sins. Jesus Christ has paid. You can accept it as a gift. Paid in full. That's what Jesus said. It is paid. It is finished. He didn't say, I am finished. It is finished. The payment for your sins. Paid in full. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. There was one more final cry. Neither Matthew nor John tell us, but Luke tells us, which I read earlier in Luke 23 verse 46, a quote from the first part of Psalm 31 verse 5. Jesus' final cry. He's paid the price. Now he's ready to leave this world so the relationship is back. That I'm sorry, the fellowship is back. I just contradicted what I said earlier. <laughs> the fellowship is back. The intimacy is back. So he says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Again, again, this contradicts the false teaching that goes on. Where we are told Jesus was dragged in hell for three days. Into whose hands the... Jesus committed his spirit. Father, into your hands. To the repentant thief, he said, today you will be with me in paradise. Jesus did not have to go to hell to suffer. His suffering was done. He paid the price. He tasted death for us on that cross. That's why he said, it is finished. If not, he would say, it will be finished after three days. Right? It is finished. It is finished. He had already endured the spiritual death earlier. Separation of his spirit from the life of God. When he cried out to God for being forsaken. Now all was left for him. Was to experience the physical death. Separation of his spirit from his body. That's why Jesus could now call God once again. It's my father. My father. And the final act was to give up his spirit. That is why we can say with confidence Jesus endured both spiritual and physical death on our behalf. For three days his physical body was in the grave. 
During that time, where was his soul, his spirit? It was in heaven. On the third day, spirit united with that body and there was that glorious resurrection which Matthew will talk about. But between that, Matthew also gives us some more details which we will look at in the coming weeks. But as we close this passage today, I just want to remind you of two things. Two things. The death of Christ should prompt us to pursue. Two things. Number one, if you are a child of God here, if you're a follower of Christ, your attitude must be one of gratitude when you contemplate the death of Christ. That should be our attitude. Peter says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. First Peter 3.18 We are the unrighteous. He is the righteous one. He paid our price on that cross so that we could be brought back to God. This is the way we are made right with God through Jesus Christ who gave his blood on the cross for our sins. Jesus is the only means through which we can have our sins forgiven because no one else lived the perfect life that Jesus lived and no one one else died as Jesus died and more importantly, most importantly, no one else rose from the dead. None. The cross is the only means through which sinful people can be reconciled to a holy God. And those of us who by his grace have been brought near to God, who have been united to Jesus Christ by faith and have been reconciled to him must reflect on the cross with a sense of unending gratitude. Because that's what we'll be doing in heaven with gratitude, praising him. We must develop that more and more in our earthly life. The writer of Hebrews, as he wrote about the coming kingdom, Jesus prepared for all who belong to Jesus as a result of his saving work applied to them, said this in Hebrews 12, verse 28. Listen to these profound words. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful. Let us continue to be thankful. Go on being thankful. And so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe. See, part of worshiping God acceptably is to have an attitude of gratitude. It's very important. It is sad sometimes to see born again, baptized believers being characterized by an attitude of grumbling. Isn't it? Yes, we may have genuine problems. A lot of us go through very hard times, no question about it. I don't mean to minimize any of our pains and sufferings. But it's one thing to petition to the Lord and to ask others for prayer as we share our troubles, but to have that attitude of constantly mumbling and grumbling. How could you do this to me? Why am I going through this? How is that fitting to be a Christian? There's that famous, um, this is my story, this is my song, praising my Savior, all the day long. Blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. We sing that song, but all the day long, our story is one of grumbling and complaining. Isn't it sad? 
That is why we must go back and ponder about this cry. Ponder about what our Lord did for us. Every suffering we go through is just temporary because one day it will cease. No more tears, no more sorrow, no more pain, no more suffering. Thursday as I was walking the hallways of the cancer hospital where Pierre's father is, as I'm walking, I'm telling myself, probably someone looked at me and thought this guy's lost it. I'm saying, Lord, one day no more hospitals, no more emergencies, no more chemos, no more any of this. I was reflecting on this sermon as I'm walking through because your death and resurrection secures that kind of a confidence for us. How can we complain? How can we complain? We receive the kingdom because King Jesus died for us sinners who were once under God's wrath. But now we no longer need to fear God's wrath. That doesn't mean we don't fear God. We must it's a holy fear, trembling, awe, reverence, all that there. But we don't need to fear his wrath because Jesus took that wrath on that cross. We don't need to fear death because he has tasted death in our place. And we don't need to fear being forsaken. Even though we might feel forsaken, we will never be forsaken because he was truly forsaken. I will never leave you nor forsake you is the promise God told his people in the Old Testament. He tells his people in the New Testament. I am with you always is how Jesus would end this glorious gospel in Matthew 28 verse 20. Paul reminds us, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with Jesus, graciously give us all things? Romans 8 verse 32. He gave up his son. He didn't withhold his best from us. Why would he now withhold whatever we need to live the rest of our earthly lives? He won't withhold anything. How can we live in grumbling and disappointment when we see our Savior hanging on that cross? Crying this cry that pierced the dark night. This kind of a love should compel us to give our all to Jesus. Nothing held back. We are to do the best we can as long as we can with whatever God's given us for the glory of Christ. Paul had this mindset. That's why he wrote these words. For Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves but for him who died for them and was raised again. That those who live should no longer live for themselves but for him for Jesus, who died for them and was raised again. Second Corinthians chapter 5, verses 14 and 15. May our lives abound in gratitude as we reflect on that cross. And our attitude of gratitude should cause us to give our all to the one who died for us. So that's the first thing that death of Jesus should prompt us to pursue. An attitude of unending 
gratitude. The second thing, the death of Jesus should prompt us to pursue is an attitude of great terror, a great fear. What do I mean by that? The same cross that should produce in us an attitude of gratitude must also produce in us great fear and trembling. Why? Because if God did not spare his son from his wrath on the cross, how can we escape from his wrath if we don't truly turn to Jesus for the forgiveness of our sins and live a life that clearly shows we are followers of Jesus? God takes sin very seriously. The ultimate proof is the cross. He didn't spare his own son. That's how much he hates sin. If God did not spare his own son, what makes you and I think he will spare us if we continue to live in sin without turning to Jesus Christ or saying with our mouth, Lord, Lord, but with our lives denying his lordship. We're only deceiving ourselves. We're delusional. We have to examine our lives. Do I live with this kind of a fear and trembling? Didi said, said Didi or Kurut, what will happen if you were to die today? What's your confidence? It's only because of Jesus Christ and what he did. Or, look Lord, my good works. That three hour darkness is not just a one time thing. It's a preview of this coming darkness where God would pour out his full and unending wrath on those who reject Jesus. In Exodus 10, when there was darkness over the land of Egypt, there was light in where the Israelites lived. God was making a distinction. Judgment is on those who rebel against me. Light, favor is on those who are mine. There's a darkness coming. I've already read you the words of Amos and Jeremiah who predicted this coming darkness of which the darkness on the cross was just a preview. Allow me to read you a few more. Just let this sink into you as we get ready to close. Blow the trumpet in Zion. Sound the alarm on my holy hill. Let all who live in the land tremble for the day of the Lord is coming. It is close at hand, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and blackness. Like dawn spreading across the mountains, a large and mighty army comes such as never was in ancient times nor ever will be in ages to come. Joel chapter 2 verses 1 and 2. And in the same chapter in verse 31, this is what the prophet Joel tells us. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. Zephaniah 1 verses 14 through 18. The great day of the Lord is near. Near and coming quickly. The cry on the day of the Lord is bitter. The mighty warrior shouts his battle cry. That day will be a day of wrath. A day of distress and anguish. A day of trouble and ruin. A day of darkness and gloom. A day of clouds and blackness. A day of trumpet and battle cry against the fortified cities. And against the corner towers. I will bring such distress on all people. That they will grow up about like those who are blind. Because they have sinned against the Lord. Their blood will be poured out like dust and their entrails like dung. Neither their silver nor their gold will be able to save them on the day of the Lord's wrath. Doesn't matter how many zeros you have in your bank account. They will not come to deliver you is what Zephaniah tells us. 
in the fire of his jealousy, the whole earth will be consumed for he will make a sudden end of all who live on the earth. Meaningless pursuits of this world will cause us to face this judgment. Escaping this. Jesus himself predicted this day of wrath that is to come on all the earth. Matthew 24 verses 29 through 30. Immediately after the distress of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from the sky and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. Then will appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven. And then all the peoples of the earth will mourn. It's too late for them to turn. Will mourn. When they see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, mentions this darkness during the time of tribulation just before Jesus returns in glory. Revelation chapter 6, verses 12 through 16. This picture should move us to flee from the wrath to come. And call upon the Lord Jesus from where you are sitting. Lord, save me from this coming wrath. Lord, please save me. And it should motivate us believers to plead with our loving friends, neighbors, relatives. Please come to Jesus. Hear these words. Inspired words. God-breathed words. Given by the Holy Spirit for us to reflect. I watched as he opened the sixth seal. John tells us there was a great earthquake. The sun turned back, turned black like sackcloth made of goat hair. The whole moon turned blood red and the stars in the sky fell to earth as figs drop from a fig tree when shaken by a strong wind. The heavens receded like a scroll being rolled up and every mountain and island were, was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth, the princes, the generals, the rich, the mighty, and everyone else, meaning none is exempt. Both slave and free, hid in caves and among the rocks of the mountains. They call to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. Verse 17, for the great day of their wrath has come and who can withstand it? Who can withstand it? Answer, none. None. That day will be too late to flee from the wrath. This day is a day of opportunity. You can flee to the cross. So you will not have to flee from the wrath to come. Fall down. Fall down. Bow your knee to this Jesus, the one who alone has taken every cup, every drop, the full cup, every drop of judgment we deserve so that you would never have to drink of it. He invites you. You're thirsty. You're hungry. Come to me. Come to me. Allow me to rebuild your life. Yes, trials may abound, but I am there with you. Come as you are. I will start making you as I want you to be. Leave that in Jesus' hands. So again, if you are here far away from Jesus, I thank God so much you're here today. You're not here by accident. God has brought you.
Don't listen to a message like this. Not because I preached. It's nothing to do with me. The text speaks. He cried this cry. It's an invitation. Come. For those of us, let's follow him with a renewed zeal. The power of the Holy Spirit. Exalt Jesus. The rest of our lives, how many ever days he's given to us. Bow in prayer with me, please. Father, I pray that uh, those who are here far away from you will recognize you did not spare your own son. On the cross, on that, during that dark time, you will not spare anyone who will not accept your son. For those who turn their backs on you now and remain that way, one day you will forsake them for all eternity. Forever. Lord, we cannot comprehend how terrible that would be to be forsaken forever by our Creator and the one who alone is our Redeemer. It's a terrible thing. The light will be permanently turned off on that day. Nothing but darkness for all eternity. Oh God, help them to turn to you like that repentant thief. And at the last minute, return to you, Jesus, and just pray a simple prayer, simple request. And you welcomed him with loving arms. I know, Lord, your arms are open. Would you please Move in the hearts of the people who are still far away from you so they will come to you with all their doubts, all their fears, all their baggages, with everything that they would be able to call on you and become your follower as a result of your spirit working in them. And for those of us in whose heart you did that work, Lord, forgive us for we don't live as much as we ought to. Help us not to live wasted lives. You are worthy. Help us to give our all to you and plead with people around us to come to you and to live a life that is worthy of the calling with which you call us. Your love should compel us, Lord, to give our all. Even if we give our lives, there is still nothing, Lord, in comparison with what you've given to us and for us. Son of God loved me and gave himself for me. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you. Amen.